Good evening. It's good to see everyone here tonight. So thankful you've chosen to be with us. As we begin our lesson tonight, we try to understand that February is the month that's sometimes called... Can you put me on the right one? Click too far there. There. February, let's go back to where we left off there. February is sometimes called the month of love and romance, isn't it? Right smack in the middle of the month, we have what's called uh, Valentine's Day. And we use that day to send uh, uh, candy and roses and, and notes and all kinds of things to those who are our one true love, don't we? And, and so we have a good time with that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But as, we, as, as sometimes we know, there are things that, that don't go exactly like we like for them to man by the name of Dinesh Kumar Byron wrote February, the month of love. No wonder, the shortest one on the calendar. The reason he said that is because sometimes, you know, when we think about love, there are things that go awry. Uh, we think about how that things mess up in relationships. We think about how that it doesn't always work. And the I do becomes the I don't a lot of times, doesn't it? But as Christian husbands and wives, as we think about some of these relationships, if I find myself in a broken relationship that just seems to be beyond repair, that, 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 uh, that, that there's really nothing that can be done, what are my alternatives? What can I do about that? Is divorce an option? You know, there are some questions that really need to be asked and answered, but from a preacher's standpoint you know, or a Bible class teacher standpoint, you don't really like to have to answer those questions because they are difficult questions. But they need to be asked and they need to be answered because they affect the lives of so many people in our world. And so I guess to the point tonight, is it a sin to get a divorce? That was one of the questions that we had listed on our uh, survey sheet. And it's one of the most asked questions, and so we've decided to look and to see what the Bible has to say in regard to that. Now, you may think we're going to be starting in a strange place tonight. Matter of fact, we're going to the Old Testament. But let's start with, a, with another question. Can a person fight God and win? Can a person fight God and win? Now, as we go back to the Old Testament, we think about two kings, a king by the name of Rehoboam and a king by the name of Jeroboam. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon, and he was the rightful heir, if you will, of the throne. He was the one who was to rule God's people. But Jeroboam came and, and basically rebelled and got some followers behind him. And so he uh, became the leader of the northern tribes of Israel, and that's when we have Israel and Judah dividing into two. But as we think about them, we understand that there came a time when King Rehoboam died. Jeroboam was still alive. And after Rehoboam died, his son, his own son, Abijah, became the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, there was a, a squabble that broke out. There was basically civil war that broke out between the northern king, kingdom and the, the southern kingdom. And if we look in the scriptures, we understand that King Jeroboam in the north, he had a massive army. He had 800,000 soldiers, the Bible says. But, uh, but in the south, King Abijah, he only had 400,000 soldiers. 
And so you would think that the king with the, with the uh, least number of soldiers would be the one who is at a disadvantage, to say the least. When he's outnumbered two to one, you would think that, hey, there's probably no way that he could win. But King Abijah stands up on the mountain and he makes a speech in the hearing of the people of Israel and in the hearing of King Jeroboam. And he has some things to say. If you have your Bible, you may want to turn over there. One of the things that I do have tonight is most every scripture that we'll be referencing, we'll place those on the screen so that we'll be sure and be able to read from God's Word. But let's go to Second Chronicles chapter 13, beginning at verse 4, and we'll go down through verse number 11. The Bible says, Then Abijah stood on Mount Zemaraim, and that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam, and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against the Lord and certain worthless scoundrels. Just imagine King Abijah standing on the mountain and he's hollering it out. He said, Some certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. And now you think, it, uh, think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David because you are a great multitude, 800,000, remember, a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made for your gods. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the people of other lands? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are not gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him, we have priests ministering to the Lord who are the sons of Aaron and Levites for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense and sweet spices, set out the showbread of the table of pure gold and care for the golden lampstand that its lamp may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Now, he makes that speech in front, of, in front of the people, and he's trying perhaps to convince them to not come against them in battle. And, and, and uh, you know, it sort of looks useless for the situation to, uh, to come down to a speech. But I want you to notice what he says next in verse number 12, because that is what is truly important. He said, Behold, this, see, this is Abijah still talking, Behold, God is with us at our head. And his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord. Do not fight against the Lord for the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Don't fight against God, you won't win. It's not just Abijah and his little army, his 400,000 compared to Jeroboam and their 800,000. Abijah challenges him, don't fight against God because you won't win. Now, what Abijah said, is it true or not? 
Absolutely. If you keep reading, we won't read all of it, but drop down to verse number 17 and see what the Bible says. Abijah and his people struck them with great force, so there fell slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men. Over half of their army was stricken dead. Dead by the 400,000 army. They killed 500,000 of them. What great loss. What great loss of life. Abijah said, don't fight God. You can't win. But you know what? He's not finished yet. In 2 Chronicles 13, going down about three more verses, verse number 20, Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him down, and he died. Abijah says, don't fight God. You can't win. You can't win. Who in their right mind, who, what sane person would try to fight God? You know, John MacArthur is a uh, religious writer, and uh, he does some pretty good writing. He's uh, pretty conservative in his writings. Uh, uh, he, he misses some things. He's a denominational writer. But I want to read you something that, that he wrote. He said, For example, you can go back to the very beginning and you can find out that God had a standard. And Eve decided to fight it. And Adam decided to join the fight. And all of us are cursed. God had a standard for sacrifice. Abel obeyed it, Cain fought it, and wound up cursed. God had a standard for morality. Noah kept it, the rest of the world fought it, and drowned. God had a standard for separation from the world and sexual purity. Abraham kept it, Lot fought it, lost his wife, and his seed was cursed. God had a standard for spiritual priority. Jacob bought it, Esau fought it, and lost the blessing. And he goes on and he tracks several of the, the, the events of the Old Testament. And he talks about fighting against God. And every time, you know what? The person who is fighting against God, as it were, loses. They lose. And so Abijah is right. You can't fight the Lord and succeed. You can't fight the Lord and win. And no sane person would, who, who really believes uh, that, 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 that he can fight and win, there, there, there is no such thing. We can't fight God and win. But now, let's sort of see if we can get back on track a little bit. Brings me to another question, and I forgot I'd put him on there. Where does marriage come from? Where does marriage come from? Now think about it. Our question tonight is, is it a sin to get a divorce? Where does marriage come from? Now don't listen to me. I, 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 I just let Jesus answer it. Look at Matthew chapter 19 at verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore the judge has joined together, let not anybody else put asunder, separate. What, what the church ha has put together, let not man separate. What the civil government has joined together, let not man separate. Now, did y'all read that out of Matthew chapter 19 at verse 6? Is that what Jesus said? No. And this is not Mark saying it. We're just reading tonight from the Scriptures. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. If you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, where did marriage come from? What's Jesus' answer? It came from God. Uh, Again, Mark talks about it as well. Mark chapter 10, verse 9. This is his account. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And and so tonight, as we look, we see where marriage comes from. Marriage comes from God. But let's digress again. Let's go to the book of Acts chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. Acts 5, verses 38 and 39. Here's a man by the name of Gamaliel. You may not know who Gamaliel was, but you may know one of his students. One of his famous students was Paul, who learned at the feet of Gamaliel. But Gamaliel is in front of the council, the Jewish council. They have brought Peter and John before them. They just don't know what to do with them. They, they want to kill them. They want to just do away with them. But Gamaliel speaks up. And notice what he says in verses 38 and 39. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Throw them. You might even be found, English Standard says, opposing God. So they took his advice. Depending upon which translation you're reading from, some of them say you may be found fighting against God. But what I want to focus on out of this passage is this. There are two places that, that, that the movement, if you will, Christianity, that it could have originated. It could have originated with man, right? Or it could have originated with God. And those are basically the only two choices you got. It either originates with man or it originates with God. And Gamaliel said, hey, if it originated with God, you better not be found trying to fight against God. In like fashion, in the very same way, marriage either originated with man or it originated with God. There's no other place that it could come from. It came from man or it came from God. And so having said that, as we look at it and talk about it tonight, what we come to understand that that if it came from God, then it must be quite important. Since marriage is of God, it did originate with him. Matter of fact, if you were to look at that word of, of man, of God, it's a word that means to originate. And if you looked at the common English Bible, C-E-B, that's the way it's translated. If it originated with man or if it originated with God. You know, if it originated with God, you better not mess with it because... You won't win. You'll be fighting against God. But we know that it came from God, don't we? That's what Jesus said, Matthew 19, 6, Luke chapter 10 at verse number 9. Since marriage is of God, it originated with God, uh, He does the joining, then only God can do the unjoining, right? If we try to do it some other way, then what are we going to find ourselves doing? Fighting against God. 
You see, since God does the joining, any law of unjoining must come from where? We can't just think it up. We can't just make it up as we go. Any law of unjoining has to come from the one who made the law to start with. It must come from God. Otherwise, what do we find ourselves doing? What Abijah warned Jeroboam not to do, and what Gamaliel warned the council not to do, don't fight against God. You know, when we come to see divorce as man seeking to undo the work of God, that puts it in a radically new perspective, doesn't it? When we come to understand that divorce is us trying to undo what God has done, that changes things, or at least it it should put it in the right perspective because we don't want to find ourselves, none of us want to find ourselves fighting against God, do we? Because as Abijah said, you won't win. You won't win. You may think you did, but you won't win. We can't do that. And so that brings us back to our original question. Is it a sin to get a divorce? Well, I want us to know tonight we're not the first one to ask the question. We're not the first ones to ever ask that question. I said tonight we're going to look and see what the Bible has to say. So let's go back to Matthew 19, verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful? And just so we go ahead and get it out on the table, look at Mark chapter 10 at verse 2. Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful? Why would they want to know if it's lawful or not? Is it lawful? Does law mean anything? Well, think about two, per- two passages, if you will. Look at Romans 4, verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. If there's no law, then you can't sin. If there is a law, what's the, what's the conclusion? If there is a law, and you break the law, you sinned. They wanted to know, is it lawful? Another passage found in 1 John chapter 3 at verse number 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. English Standard Translation of that. Sin is lawlessness. If you were to read from the, say, the King James Version, it says, Whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. The definition of sin is that it is a transgression of the law. The word that's used, translated lawlessness, here in 1 John chapter 3 at verse 4 by the uh, English Standard Translation is anomia. A, the first part of that word, means it's a negative particle, and, and the last part, nomos, means law. So, not or no law, literally. In other words, the definition is simply illegality, violation of law, transgression. One who breaks the law, who 
steps over the law, who goes against the law, who breaks the law, commits sin. And so the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Matthew says, for any cause, for just for any reason. Well, what say you, Jesus? Now look at me. I'm not the one answering the question tonight. What does Jesus say? Go back to Mark chapter 10, verses 3 through 9 to begin with. He answered them. This is Jesus' answer to them asking that question. What did Moses command you? Well, they said Moses allowed a man to, to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. He goes on and says, but from the beginning of the creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. And here's where we started a while ago. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Is it lawful? What did Moses say? Well, yeah, you could. Why did Moses say that? Because you had hard hearts. Have you ever read anywhere in the Bible where a hard heart accomplished anything good? When Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, did any good come from that for him? Absolutely not. What did he lose? Lost his son. Lost his servants. Lost his kingdom. Lost his life. Everyone who hardens their heart against God loses, don't they? But he said, Moses, Moses allowed you. Why was it? Because of the hardness of your heart. Look at his, his answer is recorded by Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And Jesus goes on. They said to him, Well, why then did Moses give command to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. We haven't learned anything basically new. Other than, what, uh, what, uh, from other than what Mark had said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But watch this next phrase. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Let's go back to that phrase. But from the beginning, it was not so. When God gave the law of a marriage, when did he give it? When did he say a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Oh, that was after, that was long, long after man had been on the earth for one day, when God took the rib from Adam and made Eve, from the beginning, God gave his command. 
You know, sometimes our, our kids used to hear in our uh, little class that we had before the Sunday night service, one man for one woman for life. And that's God's original law. Remember what the Pharisees asked, is it lawful? Is it lawful? They wanted to know if, it, if they would be breaking the law, if they would be sinning, if they got a divorce. That's our question tonight, isn't it? And so as we look at it, we see Jesus answers a question. From the beginning, God never intended for marriages to break up. He never intended that. God's plan for marriage has always been one man for one woman for life. You want to know where, that, where, the, where we're taught that in the New Testament? Look at Romans chapter 7 at verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies... She's released from the law of marriage. Notice there, the law of marriage. Ask a minute ago, where did that start? All the way back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, notice again, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse uh, 1. That should be verse 1. Wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband, or verse 39 rather, um, uh, uh, as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Death. 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 Man and a woman married for how long? In God's sight, they're to be married for life. It's God's original law. Are there exceptions? Well, remember what we read in Matthew 19, verse number 9. Right there at the tail end of that answer, Jesus said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, what was the question? Can you divorce your wife? It be lawful? The man divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, if you're reading King James and some of the other translation, fornication, except for sexual immorality and marries another, he commits adultery. Let me ask you, is adultery a sin? Sure. The Bible very clearly teaches us that adulterers, those who continue to practice that, don't have a place in heaven, do they? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 teaches us that. Are there exceptions? Yes, one. For one to marry, divorce, and remarry, there has to be sexual immorality. Now, it's not our, not our task tonight to, to deal with that in great detail. But let me just observe this. And we could look uh, through the scriptures and, and, and show that. But the one, who is, uh, the one who is the innocent party, it seems, is the one who has the right to remarry, not the one who has committed the adultery, the fornication. Otherwise, if you wanted to break your marriage, what you do? You go out and you commit fornication. And then you just, you're free to remarry. And that doesn't make sense in God's, uh, God's law. But as we look at it, we come to understand there is a, an exception. There's, there's another place where that is dealt with. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. What we know is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, that's a little bit different saying, isn't it? 
when Jesus makes that statement, the one who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Brother Wayne Jackson writes, he says, to initiate divorce proceeding upon any other basis is therefore to go beyond what is authorized by divine law. What have we already seen about law? Think about what he says, though, in Matthew 5, at verse 32. Makes her commit adultery. The man, man divorces his wife for any reason other than this idea of sexual immorality, fornication, makes her commit adultery. Makes from the word which means to make or to do. It's, a, it's written in such a way in the original language that, that it indicates the certainty. The certainty of something. There's no doubt about it. And it's also written in such a way that it's a continuous, linear, repeated action. He makes her commit adultery. Well, why is that? Well, if she has married someone else, having been put away for any other cause, she commits adultery. But who caused that? Who does Jesus say caused that? The one who divorced his wife except for the cause of fornication. You know what? I've been asked this a number of times. Well, what if, what if there's no adultery or fornication involved and, and, and we divorce and, and I just wait my wife out or, or the wife says, I just wait my husband out and, and he gets married and so now he's committed adultery. Folks, that is somehow... Folks lose their mind when it comes to this idea of, of marriage. Who caused that? Don't ask me. Read what Jesus said. The one who put away his wife except for that cause of fornication causes her, makes her commit adultery. Well, that, that just wipes out that old thought. Well, I'll just wait her out. Or I'll wait him out, and he gets married first, and that gives me the right to remarry. We didn't divorce for fornication, but now he or she has committed fornication. Now I'm free to remarry. No! Absolutely not! Because you've sinned by causing her to commit adultery. This doesn't work that way. You know... Paul addressed that too in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 at verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What happens when you divorce someone without proper cause, without scriptural reason? Well, you, you separate yourself and, and now one is tempted Where'd the temptation come from? Satan did it. Who did he use? You. Preacher, what you're preaching tonight is hard. I don't admit it. I don't like preaching on these things because it is hard. It is hard. But you know what? When Jesus made the statement so long ago, when he was on the earth, 
The people who heard him that day knew it was hard. Look at Matthew 19, verse 10. We know verse 9. That's the one that talks about except for the cause of fornication. What does verse 10 say? The disciples said to him, if such is the case, what? The only reason you can divorce and remarry is because your partner has committed fornication. If that's the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. That's what they thought. That's what they thought. Lord, what you're saying is, is hard. You're, you're being difficult. Jesus addressed that, verses 11 and 12. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. What saying? The saying that the disciples had just made, it's better for him not to marry. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given, for they are eunuchs who have been so from birth. They are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And they are eunuchs who have, been, uh, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. You know anybody who was able to receive it? And I'm not saying personally, but you've read about them. A man by the name of Paul in the Bible. He said, I have a right to marry. But he himself, and he discusses this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. He, he said, I've been able to handle it. But more folks, most folks can't. But you know, whether you can or whether you can't, it doesn't erase the fact that what you're doing when you get married is one of the most important things that you will ever do. Aside from becoming a Christian, obeying the gospel, that's one of the most important decisions you will ever make. And yet folks do it haphazardly without ever even thinking or giving it enough thought to the importance of what they're doing. Yes, it is a hard matter. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 and 2 concerning the matters about which you wrote. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Somehow or other... The Corinthians had heard about what these disciples who Jesus had at his had close to him, who made the statement, it's better for a man not to marry. Somehow they had gotten that same impression. And so they write Paul about it. They ask about it. it, it it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The right way of doing things is to, to have the marriage. To have the marriage. Folks, be sure. Be doubly sure. Be triply sure of what you're doing because of the importance of it, of what's involved. But that brings us to another. What about divorcing an abusive partner for safety reasons? You know, we get more and more like the Pharisees and the Sadducees every day. 
But what about? But what about? You remember we talked about this morning that hypothetical situation. Those hypothetical questions. But what about? But what about? We do just like those men and back in Jesus' day. But what about? Here's what we need to remember. Marriage is to be based on, on God's law. And what's God's law for husbands and wives? Husbands, love your wives. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot and wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. God's law is, is not to have a husband beating a wife or berating a wife. It's to love his wife. Colossians 3 verse 19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You know what? For a man to beat a woman, to berate a woman, for a woman to turn around and to beat the man... That happens too. Y'all do know that, don't you? To berate the husband is a sin. And certainly God nowhere commands that a person must continue to endanger themselves physically or mentally at the, at the hand of another. So what should a Christian do? What should a Christian do in the scenario presented in the question? Paul somewhat addresses that in the book of 1 Corinthians 7, 13 and 14. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever, now, mind you, he's talking about a Christian woman with an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, it's unfortunate that the word that translated divorce here by the English Standard Version is not the, the term that's used for divorce in the rest of the Bible. Uh, literally, she should not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. If things are going good in the marriage, what does Paul say? Keep it together. But what if it's not? To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband, again, unfortunate, translated by the word divorce. It's not the, not the word for divorce. He, he should not leave his wife. Should not leave his wife. If it's not going good... You know, we have some guidelines there. If it is, stay together. If not, there may be a separation. But even in that, it's even in this context that Paul talks about the separation being for a short time. And yet even with that, there's no authorization for remarriage. They remain unmarried. Again, in answering the question, what about an abusive relationship? 
Maybe God's ordained government should be doing its job. 13, 3, and 4, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct. You know, I would say that a person who is beating his wife or the wife who's throwing things at her husband or berating, I would say that's not good conduct. Wouldn't you? Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. I think that qualifies as the bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good. You'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You know, I would advise if there is, if, if there is a problem where someone is hurting you, use the law. You say, well, preacher, you just don't understand. Sometimes if you call the law, if you call the police, then that just makes them worse because they don't do anything. I understand. I understand. I do know what else the Bible says in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, verses 19 and 20. If anyone injures his neighbor or has done, it shall be... Uh, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. I know things are broken. Not just relationships, but our laws are broken sometimes. But that still doesn't give us a right to take things into our own hands, does it? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 38 and 39, if you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You're saying, preacher, you need to stand there and just be beaten up in the marriage. No, that's not what I said. We don't retaliate in the wrong way. We handle things in the right way. So part of that would be in the, uh, the domestic violence kinds of things. And, and, and for police, for firefighters and others, if they're called onto a scene like that, that's one of the most volatile times and one of the, one of the times when they're most at danger. But even in that situation, has God allowed one to put a husband or a wife away and, and remarry. I say get away from, from the danger. I think God in common sense requires that. But we can't, we can't use that to say, well, God, has, he's, he, he, God understands. He authorized something different to, to get out of that marriage and, and for me to go be happy. I've said it twice already, and I'll say it third time tonight. I don't like preaching on things like this. But you have to because it affects so many people. People are hurting because of it. But not just because of that. It is one of the most important things, decisions that we'll ever make in our life. Marriages are not made to be broken. And we need to do everything we can not to fight against God. That puts a lot of pressure 
I don't know that that's the right word. But it, but it really moves us as a person to do everything I can to keep my marriage intact. It puts a lot of pressure, and again, I don't know that that's the right word, but it puts a lot of pressure on the Lord's church to try to teach the truth about marriage. Elders and preachers and Bible class teachers have a grave responsibility Because it is an important thing. Even Jesus recognized that. His disciples recognized it. But marriage is still a very good thing. And if we are the person that we really need to be, we can have one of the best things that God has ever designed for earth. What if? What if? What if? I don't know the answers to all the what if questions. But I do know what God has said. And I don't ever want to be found fighting against God. Let's be careful. Be careful with who you date. Because, you know, in America, it's almost 100% that you're going to marry whoever you date, right? And some other places, that's not the case. They're arranged still. But where we live, whoever we date, we're going to choose our mate from that. If we're dating the wrong people, don't... Don't expect to change them just because they say, I do. Be very careful. Start before you get married, choosing the right person, praying for the right person. Parents, you'd do well to pray for the right person for your son or your daughter, that they will find the right one, the Christian mate that they will be able to have a long and happy marriage and bring the grandkids to see you together. And by all means, do everything you can after you are married to be the Christian God expects you to be. That will help your marriage tremendously. In addition to working and living as a Christian and going home to heaven, it helps us with our family. Is it a sin to get a divorce? I, I think the Bible teaches us pretty clearly when we break God's laws, yes, it is a sin. And God has given us a law that we can't take lightly. We can't do it. It may be tonight that you're here and you're not a Christian. You need to come to the Lord. Why don't you do it tonight? Maybe you're here and there's something amiss in your life that you need to make right. Why don't you make that right tonight? Let us pray with you and for you. If you need to respond, come right now.